I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. I am here with Neil Carter. Neil Carter writes on Patheos with me, but for the Godless in Dixie website, and I'll let him do the rest of the introduction. Hi, my name is Neil, and I write for Godless and Dixie, like him had said, and I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. I teach high school geometry at the moment, and um, I've got a sort of ministry background, so I write a lot about what it's like being a former evangelical Christian in the Deep South. Yeah, so talk us, talk to us about that for a second. What I can imagine what it's like, but what is it like being an atheist in Mississippi? Well, it's really hard to find where you fit in because in that culture, religion is everywhere. It's like being in church everywhere you go all the time. So if you don't identify with that, then you're a person non grata. You know. So, How long have you been in Mississippi? Uh, all but 10 years of my life. Okay, so did you... Did you become an atheist when you were living there and like what's that so you grew up in the culture yes so if you become an atheist at some point there you have to know there's like oh there's something wrong with this then right well um I, yeah i grew up as an as a southern baptist and it was while i was in atlanta georgia i lived in that area for about 10 years and that was when i realized that i really wasn't believing the same things i used to believe but i was very slow to come out about it because i knew that it would cause a lot of problems a lot of people make really quick character judgments about how old you. are you when this happens. I was about 35. Okay. So um, it took me a few years to kind of wrestle with it. And then when I finally came out about it, it, it definitely was disruptive to my relationships. Yeah. So what happens when you, how do you start telling people, first of all, once you convince yourself you're right. an atheist? Right. Well, the easiest, the smartest thing to do is to drop little hints here and there yeah. and sort of ease people into it. But that's not what I did. <laughs> I, I chose moments to just sort of tell everything, and that was probably the worst way to do it because it freaks people out. Give me an example of that. Well, I mean, there were some crisis moments where I had to sit down family members and just tell them, okay, I really don't believe in the whole thing anymore. And that's very scary for them because now they think that I've been taken over by the devil or something. I mean, I don't know. We, where I come from, we didn't use that language, but that's, that's what they believe. They just don't say it out loud. So what was their reaction when you tell them? Well, you know, the first reaction is always to try to get me back in to the faith. They feel that it's their responsibility to save me again. And also, several people just were in denial, you know, because they can't imagine that somebody really doesn't believe in God. Because those people raised. are elsewhere, not in their family. Right. Well, and they're also taught that everybody really believes in God. So when somebody says they don't, they're just fooling themselves because somehow they know better than I do what I believe. Clearly. You know? Yeah. So I have to convince them that I really don't believe. And it took a couple of years to soak in for some people that I'm serious. I really don't believe. They just can't, they can't accept it. And at this point, do you have children? Yes, I have four daughters. And so are you married at the time when you are an atheist, becoming an atheist? Yes. So how does that impact your relationship right then and there? It's difficult because while a lot of relationships are formed around multiple different commonalities, my marriage was very much formed around a common faith. So when I didn't share that faith anymore, that presented a major problem. And uh, it was difficult. We had a number of problems we had to work through. But uh, our biggest difficulty was that when it came time to work through our problems, we couldn't find common ground because there really weren't a whole lot of tools as evangelical Christians 
to work with that much of a difference in belief. You know, uh, my understanding. Yeah, you're not someone who's doubting. You are someone who's past that. I was past that. By the time I was willing to talk about it to other people, I was pretty much already settled as, as not believing at all, which I think made it even more frustrating to people. But I didn't know how to talk about it because in an evangelical world, you, you, you're not really supposed to talk about your doubts too openly because it's, it's seen as a weakness, you know, you're being weak in your faith. And so you're supposed to overcome that. And doubts are seen as a, a danger to your faith rather than something helpful to work through. So at this point, I can kind of understand then, you know, when you get married under this kind of cloak of religion, yeah, that's a tough thing to work through for any, uh, for any couple or anything. How are, your, how are your kids dealing with it? Were they old enough to know what exactly is happening? They weren't because we kept it between ourselves. I mean, okay. they, they knew that we were breaking up. They knew that we were in counseling for a while. They really weren't privy to the details. And it was a couple of years after the divorce before I even told them that I wasn't a Christian anymore because I was trying to minimize the number of things that they had to <laughs> wrestle with all at once. But after enough time had gone by and after I'd started writing and started even showing up in some videos, I figured it was just a matter of time before they're going to come across me on the internet so they needed to hear it from me first before they found out from friends. So I eventually just sat them down a few months ago and said, okay, so I know you know I don't go to church anymore. Literally like a few months ago now? Yes, like it was just this past fall. And how old are they at this point? Uh, like the oldest ones anyway. Oldest one's 15, then 14, then 10, then 7. So they're old enough to know what's going on when you're telling them this now. Yes, yes. Were they, they surprised? They weren't entirely surprised. I think it took them a while to really... Uh, sink in what I was saying because they knew that I wasn't active in church anymore, but to, to full out use the A word and say that I'm an atheist, that was a lot for them to take. So uh, they each handled it in their own characteristic ways. Uh, two of my children are very introverted and they, they never said another word about it after that. <laughs> and they still have it. And I can tell that they're not totally comfortable. Uh, that's not true. I had one conversation with one of my daughters uh, in, in the car not too long ago. And that was an interesting conversation. It ended up being about evolution. Um, my younger two girls are a lot more extroverted and they told me what they thought right away. And I have one daughter who's a little evangelist and her <laughs> Sunday school teacher, they, they're very active in church. Their Sunday, her tr- Sunday school teacher is a, an apologist. That's what he does for a hobby. He's an apologist. So he is training my daughter to, um, <laughs> to combat my, my atheism. And we've had a number of apologetic debates, me and my 10 year old. It's pretty fascinating. Hopefully in good fun. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, we have a very good relationship. Yeah. Um, in fact, it would be a fascinating conversation to publish at some point, maybe when they're a little bit older, because it's, it's, it's hilarious to watch how, how, it, how it plays out. That's awesome. Well, yeah. so you do have a good relationship with the daughters and everything. Yes. And so are the older ones, are they still religious? Do they have the same sort of reaction that your other family members did when you came out to them? Well, yes, except that they were a lot more quiet about it. You know, um, I, I can tell that, that it makes them very uncomfortable. And um, so we just don't talk about that part. You know, uh, every now and then I'll throw out something just to see what reaction I get. Like um, in the car just a couple of days ago, I, I, I threw out that, you know, there's an evolutionary explanation for that. <laughs> and one of my daughters just got super quiet and very still at that point because I knew that was a sore subject for her. You know, and nobody's made it at a major point in my family to say that they're not supposed to believe in evolution, but they're in a world that, you know, that sees that as an atheist idea. That's the culture. Yeah. 
So that's not too far from how it works with my family, my parents mm-hmm. anyway, where it's, let's just not talk about this and keep the peace. Cause right. what's the, what are we going to argue about? I'm, pro- I'm, we're not going to convince each other at this right. point. Well, there's, there's an unspoken rule for a lot of people around holidays that you don't bring up politics at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Okay. So it's the same basic principle. You know, I mean, there can be moments where you talk about these controversial things, but when you realize it's not going anywhere positive, you might as well just say, you know what, let's just move on and talk about other things yeah. that we don't fight about. Because we got to see each other a lot. Right, so right. So why just, make it bad? When it's family, you have to learn to work around these things. Yeah. Learn which things to just not to talk about too much. At what point here in this journey do you start writing about this stuff or talking about it or going beyond just, okay, these are my personal beliefs. I'm going to mm-hmm. talk to some people I'm close to about them or tell them. When do you start saying, okay, how do I become an advocate for this stuff? Once I lost my job. And what were you doing at the time? I was teaching. Okay. And um, I'm very convinced that the reason why I lost that job was because my principal found out I was an atheist. And the reason I say that is because she actually pulled me aside one day, gave me a list of things she told me I wasn't supposed to talk about in my history classroom. And when I asked her why, she said, because there was talk in the community that I was an atheist. And at that point, I was still closeted. But some people had found some stuff on social media and that I meant to hide. So that's how they knew I was an atheist. And, um, and all of a sudden, it became, became to affect my job. Next thing you know, like your reviews are coming in and you're just not a great teacher well, anymore. Well, they didn't give me any specific reasons. They just said they weren't going to bring me back the next uh-huh. year. Two weeks later, I started a blog. Okay. And I said, okay, fine. You know what? <laughs> if this is the way it's going to be, if I'm going to lose all my friends, if my family's going to break up, and then I'm going to lose my job, I might as well just come out and start talking about this stuff because there's nothing left to take away. You know? What are you writing about at first? Well, the very first thing that I did was the interview with the pastor for the interview in Atheist at Church Day. Yeah, so I think this was when some, I, don't, I forgot who spearheaded this thing. Kyle but- Jones. Okay, who's an atheist, right? Or yes, was, Cal, yeah. Cal's an atheist, and he was working for the Claremont Journal of Religion, and um, I think he had used uh, Friendly Atheist as a platform for publicizing that he was doing this um, interview in Atheist Day in May of 2013. And um, when I saw that on your site, I signed up for it right away and said, if you can find anybody within a 300-mile radius of me, I would love to go do an interview in a church because I feel very at home in a church setting. You know what it's like there. I do. I, sp- I speak Baptist. Yeah. <laughs> and so I knew it would be perfect for me. And um, they found one fairly liberal pastor in the area who I didn't know at the time was on his way out of the state. Oh, really? Yes. So he could do whatever he wanted. Yes. Let's torch up the place while we go. Right after the interview, a month later, he moved to Georgia. Interesting. uh, Into a college town. Oh, so he's he's in a good spot. He's in a really good spot. And he was a transplant, so he didn't exactly fit into the Jackson, Mississippi culture anyway. So he's like, you know what? I can do whatever I want. So we did the interview. It went over really, really well. You posted it the next uh, day, I think. Yeah, because it it was a fat... I remember that because it was a fascinating conversation. It was a positive conversation. Very positive, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, we the two of us met for a couple of lunches before that to talk about what we wanted to talk about. We figured out what our common goals will be. Um, you know, on my end, my main goal was not to try to convince anybody of anything. I just wanted them to understand that they misunderstand atheists. You know, they have a, a preconceived notion, and I was going to try to dispel some of those myths. And on his end, he was wanting to teach his own congregation how to reach out to people who are different from them. And in my case, I was both different and the same. Yeah. So it was a perfect bridge. And he said, you know, I see you as an opportunity to teach them how to reach out to people who don't believe the same things. So we both had something to get out of it. 
So we talked about what we wanted to share about. He asked me the questions. The congregation passed up questions, and those were interesting. They're always good. They were. Um, <laughs> I had a few people come up to me afterwards and, you know, kind of give a few sales pitches, one of which was one of the guys who used to be my little league coach. Uh, that was an interesting conversation. So an older guy? Uh, very grandfatherly. Yeah. came and put his hand on my shoulder, and he, he started asking me what I would do one day when, when my life falls apart. Oh. Who, who would I turn to? That was his sales pitch. And my thought was, <laughs> how do you know my life hasn't already fallen apart? Yeah. But anyway, he meant well. But I posted that, and then, and then from that point on, the next few weeks was mostly unpacking that conversation and, and unpacking what my own goals were as a blogger, which largely just had to do with talking about what it's like being an atheist in the South, and then just trying to um, dispel the myths of what an atheist is like, because there's not just one type, you know, there's dozens. Were you surprised that people were actually... I think this happens every time anyone's, whether it's YouTube or podcasting or whatever, you put something out there, you hope people will see it because you're not doing it just for yourself here. And were you surprised that people were responding to it? Yeah, I I thought maybe a few hundred people total would be interested and I thought it would be mostly local people. Um, And it was one of the first things I learned was how my experience was similar to people all over the country, that evangelicalism and what I used to think was a Bible Belt thing is actually in the Midwest, it's in the Great Lakes, it's, it's out even in the Northwest. It just depends on where you are. And, and, and as soon as you get more than 20 minutes away from a city, you're back in the Bible Belt again. So let me ask you, now that, we're, now that you've been an atheist for a while, what do you see happening with the future of that church? You said you're Southern Baptist, but even the, the whole evangelical culture, though, what's going to happen for them in the long run? Do you see them figuring out how to, like, manage? Because I see them failing so badly on LGBT issues yeah. primarily and other ones too. But, like, are they going to figure this out or are they just going to start getting smaller and even more, you know, strongly against all this stuff? Right. No. Well, um, I have not seen a whole lot of minds change above a certain age group. And honestly, I think they're going to die away. Yeah. And I think they're going to go to their graves believing the same things. I've, I've had a couple of um, lunches with people who are kind of high up in the de- denomination, and I've asked them these questions. And they're just willing to go to their graves with this. You know, I talked with a, a, a music minister from a mega church in our area, and I said, you know, you're on the losing side of this battle about the gay marriage. And I said, my one piece of advice to you is you got to drop the gay thing. Yeah. It's just not going anywhere positive. And he said, you know, I, I, we may lose it, but I believe we're called to lose it. You know, that's that mentality. Sure. So what about the younger ones that aren't dying off anytime soon? I think, I think like any other religious movement, I think they're going to reinvent themselves. They'll come up with some, some form that fits the culture better in the future. They'll drop the gay marriage uh, battle. Uh, they might even drop the abortion question. Um, I think what will happen is it'll probably morph into something more maybe YouTube-based. You know, um, the, the model that's been popular among evangelical churches lately has been more about single personalities broadcasting their messages over a wider area. And, um, you know, churches have satellite campuses now. So you don't have to physically attend the building to be a part of that church. It's mostly about an experience, a media experience. Well, that media experience can be reproduced on your laptop sitting at home. So why can't the church of the future just sort of morph into something that's more internet-based? So instead of television, televangelists uh, making their ministries from there, mm-hmm. we're going to see more YouTube pastors in a sense. I think that in the future, the church experience of most evangelicals will be online. And, um, and it will be able to support itself because there's ways to, uh, to raise support online. Your tithing can be done through Patreon or some other right. similar type fundraising 
uh, mechanism. And I think that's the way churches of the future are going to be. I think the message will morph. They'll still have to have financial support, and it'll be through these common personalities on the Internet, but it'll be based more on the Internet. And then there'll be an occasional gathering. You don't have to have gatherings every single month or every single week. It could be that once a quarter, they all gather in one place. So it reduces overhead. Now they don't have to have quite so many people around to fund their building. That's kind of the way I see it in the future. And it's fascinating too, if you've ever been to like a Christian conference, uh, how many people are we talking here? Go to some of these big giant... A like, lot of people actually. How many is a lot? Because I think people really miss out on the scope of just how big these things are. Mm-hmm. If you're talking like the biggest atheist gathering ever... It's probably like the Reason Rally in Mm -hmm. 2012, and we're talking, what, 20,000 people, Mm -hmm. maybe give or take some because there was no actual count. And that's nothing for like one mega church. Right. So when you're talking about some of these bigger conferences, how many people are there? Yeah, well, I'm going to guess that Reason Rally 2 is going to be more like 40 to 60. I think it's going to be, I really think it's going to be bigger. Uh, And there's time to prepare, but that's a whole year in advance. And you're talking about churches that have regional conferences you know, several times a year and draw 20, 30, 40,000 or the concerts that they have or big events where a televangelist comes to an area. Maybe he's got a healing ministry or something. And they even have to pay 10 to 20 bucks to get in. And they still draw 40, 50, 60,000 people. So, so on our amazing. best day, we're like a typical mega church on some random weekend. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is why I really laughed when they talked about the atheist mega church. I think was, whoever came up with <laughs> if that, that, only. Was, that was very clickbaity because I think that meant like a hundred people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those atheist mega churches popping up everywhere with the dozens—they're all flocking in, getting rich. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, you were uh, speaking of like just kind of being open in Mississippi. So this spring. CBS did a segment that was like 10 minutes long Mm -hmm. just on what it's like to be an atheist in society. What was interesting to me is CNN did an hour-long special on atheists. Yes. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I like that they're talking about atheism for like an hour on CNN. But then like, I don't know if it was a few days or like a week later, CBS, there's this 10-minute segment that I thought did such an amazing job. And you were one of the few atheists who were profiled in that piece. Mm -hmm. So now this is, you're talking about some of the stuff we're talking here, but this is going to a national audience. What was the reaction you got? Maybe on a national level, and then just in your community? National level, I got really busy really quick. A lot of corresponding, a lot of people writing in, saying how much they appreciated uh, the positive um, picture of atheism that was presented. Um, they, did, they did respond really well to how, how well they condensed a lot of information into a short amount of time. And they loved how the openly secular campaign is very positive in its approach. Because um, that's a, what the segment was focused on, this openly secular come out on... Uh, on one specific day in April and stuff, and this was stories of people who had come out. Right, exactly. And because the focus of that campaign is simply about identifying yourself, um, there's fewer of the issues that would be controversial. It's just like, yeah, okay, so coming out and just owning your own label and owning your own identity, I mean, a lot of people can be supportive of that, even people who don't believe the same things. And, And so the people who did that segment did a really good job of presenting that in a sensitive way, and I was really impressed with that. Locally, what happened was a handful of people watched the CBS piece when it came out that Sunday morning, but it really hit locally when the local paper picked it up on Wednesday of that week. That was when the flood of calls started hitting my family members, <laughs> and I started getting calls from family members asking to have dinner with them so we sit down and talk about what, why did I do this? Why because they I want to convert you. Not anymore. No. Okay. They just were upset that I went on national television <laughs> because honestly, that kind of shames the family. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, where we live, being a part of the Christian faith is a major identity marker. And for me to openly admit that I'm not and to make a deal out of that was offensive to them. And they just couldn't understand why you would do that. And my feeling was the fact that they can't understand why I'm doing that is exactly why I'm doing that. Because people who are in a position of privilege don't understand what it's like to not be in that position. And, and I, I grew up as someone who I think had a lot of privilege. And now that I'm on the other side of that, I can feel the difference. And, and I feel like it's, it's part of my responsibility to tell them what's different about it. But it's really hard to get them to understand it. That's why they call it privilege blindness. You know, just couldn't understand that at all. So it caused quite a stir locally for me once it hit the local papers. And, uh, but despite the negative responses I got from a lot of people, and of course all my students by that point knew that I was an atheist, many of them had started actually looking at the blog uh, before that. They just Googled me and found me. And but kids talk. They do. They do. And they tried to follow me on Twitter, and, and yeah. they started putting graffiti on the walls and all kinds of stuff. But um, I also had a few people come up to me, uh, teachers and other staff members, that said that they thought what I did was great. Uh, not because they themselves were atheists, but just because they feel strongly in freedom of speech, and they feel strongly in having a pluralistic you know, public square, and that mattered to them personally. And I thought that was great that they took the time to do that. So this segment aired in April... Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, that leaves you with a couple months left of school. Of so if school. anybody didn't know that, if the mm-hmm. students weren't aware you're an atheist, they definitely they knew now. Then. So did that change the dynamic in the classroom at all over those next several weeks? I don't think it could have gotten any worse. Okay. It, it had already gotten so bad. About a month into this year, um, and this is the second year I've taught at this school, but the first year nobody knew about the blog. The second year, about two or three weeks into school, people started telling each other that I had a blog, and they started trying to follow me on Twitter, and then they started you know, talking about it. And they started poking fun at me during school. And, in a um, pleasant way? or Not a pleasant no, way. Okay. No, and, uh, and they started writing like Jesus on the walls and carving it into the desks. And it just was, I, I, I coined the term evangelism <laughs> because that's what it was. It, it wasn't even a very deep and thought through uh, kind of approach. They, they were not very spiritual children. They're just, they're just being teenagers and they're being rebellious. It's just that they found something to poke me about. Yeah, and once that stuff starts, it's very hard to get their attention. It takes on to a life of its own. <laughs> to yeah, do yeah, because at that point, my uh, my authority's been undermined. And one of the funny things that I noticed in this class is that there's good kids and there's bad kids in the class. And the good kids sometimes keep the bad kids in line. But where I am from, the good kids are all good church going kids. But I lost the respect of those kids because I wasn't. So a no Christian. one's keeping the class in check anymore. Yeah. In That's fact, tough. in some cases, the religious kids were kind of leading the way. Because they were the ones who ordinarily are the, the trendsetters in the room because they're sort of leadership type. But in, in this case, one of them came up to me and said, you know, I know why I'm in your class, Mr. Carter. And I said, because you need to learn geometry. And she <laughs> said, no, God put me in your class. I said, okay, why? And she's like, because I need to save you. And I said, from what? She said, from yourself. And I'm thinking, okay, do you know how disrespectful this conversation <laughs> is? I'm, I'm like three times your age. Yeah, and thank you, 14-year-old, for giving me life advice. Exactly. And that's, <laughs> that's what I mean. The dynamic changed, and that kind of threw things off of balance for me. So um, you're st- here's what's impressive to me. You've gone through all this shit in Mississippi, and yet you're still promoting, you're still advocating for these ideas, and that's not an easy thing to do. Um, tell me about your work with the Hotline Project. Um, when I was deconverting, I didn't have anybody to talk to about my questions. Uh, most evangelicals feel very threatened by the kinds of questions that I asked, and a lot of people go through that same experience. Since that time, Recovering from Religion has started a Hotline Project, which is 184 I Doubt It. And uh, which is cute. 
And um, it's, you know, it's, it's not 24 hours yet, although it is on the weekends, but at night people don't have anybody to talk to. They can call this project hotline and um, there'll be people who will listen to them, talk through their issues. They won't try to guide them one direction or another. They just give them resources. You know, they say, well, here's a website you could check out that might help you answer some of your questions. And then they also sort of field and screen for other issues. If there's suicidal thoughts or if somebody's got an abusive background, they'll help get them connected to groups that can help with that sort of thing. So, so if you're having religious doubts and you're concerned about them or you just want to talk to somebody, now you have the chance to do that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I know you can't give us details of specifics or anything, right. but if, if I were to call you and say, you know, I, I don't think I believe in the stuff I was raised with anymore, like, what would you tell them? I mean, we start by asking open-ended questions. So talk to me about what, what brought you to that. Um, and how are you working through that? Do you have anybody that you can talk to about that? If, they're, if they have resources in their area available, we try to connect them to that. We just ask a lot of open-ended questions. Um, you have to work really hard to not talk about your own personal beliefs. Because, um, again, we, this is not like deconverting. It's not a deconversion hotline. Yeah. In fact, there are a number of people at many places on the spectrum of, of belief that work for the hotline, that volunteer. Um, they're not even opposed to having Christians uh, volunteer for it. The point is we just need people who are non-confrontational, that are not trying to push people one direction or another, and and they're just there to listen for the most part. Um, so a, a lot of times they'll get phone calls from people who aren't the doubters themselves. They're the people who are trying to figure out how to help the doubters. Hmm. Like they'll call in and say, my daughter seems to have lost her faith. I don't know what to do. Can you help me figure out what to do? And we'll say, okay, well, here's some suggestions of how you can be supportive to her, which I think is beautiful. What has your experience been like as someone who's taking the calls? I haven't been able to take many calls yeah. uh, because I'm just busy. Yeah. Um, but um, I've, I've been watching the management side of things, and um, it's very emotionally draining sometimes. Um, I'm a part of the discussion group where folks kind of um, diffuse their stress after they get off some of these calls. And some nights you can have really young children calling in with very emotional uh, baggage and, and, and you just kind of have to um, decompress for a while. And it takes a lot out of you. You know, some of these callers have to take a few days off. I mean, the, 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 um, the, you know, the, the folks that take calls. Because the people who are calling, I mean, you have to imagine if they're willing to call that hotline, they may be at one of these low points in their lives because they don't yeah. know what to do. Everything that they thought they believed has just been mm-hmm. taken out from under them. It's very upsetting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and some of the stories, um, when, when we hear the way that family and friends treat them as a response, they're well-meaning people, but they say and do some of the most judgmental, unhelpful things. There's really not a lot of good tools given to the evangelical community to deal with doubt. Doubt is seen as an enemy. And so it's attacked like an enemy. Only when you attack doubt, you're, you're actually, in a way, attacking the people who are having the doubts, whether you mean to or not. So they come in, and they're very upset. And, and having to listen to that and shoulder that is, is very draining. It's very upsetting because you're seeing how they're being mistreated. And they're being mistreated by the people who are closest to them, their father, their mother, their spouse. And that's, that's, that's upsetting. You've been traveling a bunch of places talking to people about, you know, your story and and atheism in general, what have you learned going out of Mississippi, talking to people who are not in that area, but who kind of face some similar problems? Like, is there anything unique about your situation in the Deep South versus someone who may be an atheist in, I don't know, Oregon or something like that? Um, What have you picked up on? What are the differences in your story versus someone who came from a Christian background but isn't from Mississippi? It's just a difference of intensity. Um, and it's a difference of uh, pervasiveness. The, the elements are there. They're the same ingredients. 
And that's one of the things that surprised me was that talking with friends from the Chicago area even who try to interact with people and once they find out they're an atheist, the conversation just turns so so sour and judgmental. And I thought that was only in Mississippi, but it's happening everywhere. So it's the same elements, but like I said, it's more intense. In, in, in Minnesota or Oregon, you have to go a ways. Well, Oregon's not so much, but you have to go a ways away from major cities before you get back into this culture that I'm talking about. In Mississippi, it's in the cities too. You know, even in the most high um, economic and political positions of power in the state, you've got ultra-religious people who have the same sort of closed evangelical mindset, and they wear their religious beliefs on their sleeve. And you mentioned that, you know, some of the older people in the churches, yeah, they're going to die away. The church is going to have to adapt if -hmm. it wants to survive. Do you think that's going to happen with the politics in Mississippi, too? It'll be, we'll be the last one. (laughs) You know, it's like, like with Prohibition, we were the last state to finally adopt the repeal of prohibition. And it'll be the same way with us. We'll just, we'll be 10 to 20 years behind everybody else, you know. And that's not going to change? No, no, no. There's just a delay when things get to the South because it's, it's closed off. It's very closed off and it's very provincial and people don't know what's going on outside of their own region other than what Fox News tells them about. Which is the definitive source for all things true. Exactly. It's like Fox News, then the Bible, then anything you have to say. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. And where can people find you? Uh, they go to godlessanddixie.com or go to Patheos and Google Godless and Dixie and they can find me there. Awesome. And we'll provide additional links uh, for Neil in the show notes. So thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.